Several months ago, I felt really heavy on my heart that the Lord was wanting me to communicate to our teenagers something specific about worship. Over the last couple of months, I've, I've been somewhat concerned with worship culture in our nation as a whole. And what I mean by that is I feel that in some ways we have made it something that it was never intended to be. You know, music, what we just experienced, music can be worship, but worship is not limited to music. And we got to be careful that we don't put the concept of worship into a box, something that just takes place for a few minutes on Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or a special occasion, but that worship is something that we live and so I, I really began, it, it was heavy on my heart to look into that. And a couple weeks ago, I gave you a teaser about our upcoming series on worship. And I, I challenged you to look up the first time that the word worship is used in Scripture. And I don't know if any of you followed through on your homework, but if you didn't, I'm going to bail you out this morning because that's what... I want to look at. Usually I needed bailing out on my homework, so I'm going to do it for you and pass it forward, all right? There is a, a law, when studying Scripture, there is something called the law of first mention. And the law of first mention says this, that if you're going to study a concept or a word in Scripture, it is a good practice to go to the first place that the word or concept is introduced and unless it's stated otherwise, it is understood that that first occasion, the first interaction that you have with it is to be a template going forward. So, for instance, if you want to study marriage, you should go to the first marriage, Adam and Eve. If you want to study the church, you should go to the early church found in the book of Acts. And so when looking at the word worship, I went to the first place in Scripture that the word worship takes place, and I was shocked at where I found it. Now, where I'm going to introduce you in a second, there is no question that other people worshipped long before we get here. There's no question that Adam and Eve worshipped God. There's no question that Enoch worshipped God. There's no question that Noah and his family worshipped God. And so we know that it took place. But I believe, and hopefully you do as well, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Meaning that it is not a randomly put together jumble of words, but that it is articulated precisely. And I feel that it's on purpose that God delayed in using the word worship until this moment right here. He could have used it elsewhere, but He delayed until this moment to introduce us to the word worship. And can I just go ahead and tell you that there was no music present when this took place. There was no hands lifted. There was no jumping. There was no shouting. But there was worship. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. If you look a couple chapters earlier... You'll see specifically in Genesis 15 that God promised to make a man by the name of Abraham great. He said that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you and your family a blessing to the world. And through your descendants, all of the peoples will be blessed. 
And after a long period of time, a long time of waiting, God did what he always do and he always does, and he followed through on his promise. We just sang it. He's always faithful, isn't he? He always comes through. Now, it didn't come when Abraham thought it was going to happen. Anybody can relate to that. Happened a little bit later, but God always comes through, doesn't he? And at the ripe old age of 100 years old, Abraham gave birth to a son. I should, no, he didn't. His wife gave birth to a son. We'll just leave it at that, all right? Baby Isaac, his, his name means laughter. In his old age, God gave them joy and laughter. Specifically in um, chapter 21, God says that Isaac, through your son Isaac, the promise is going to be fulfilled. And can you imagine after all of those years of waiting, all of those years of hoping, all of those years of questioning and wondering, and finally Isaac shows up, the fulfillment of the promise. Can you imagine what Abraham felt? Abraham and Sarah, don't you know that boy was spoiled? And then you come to Genesis 22. Are you there? Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. He chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will what? We will worship there. And then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But at that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. So Abraham looked up and he saw a ram that was caught caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Church, this is worship. This is worship. If you would have been with us on Wednesday nights, you would have learned that worship looks like obedience. Early the next morning, he got up and began to set out to do what God had told him to do. Worship looks like trust. That he didn't understand what God was doing, but he stood on what God said. And this morning, I want to look at the fact that worship is establishing God on the throne of your heart. 
Worship is establishing God on the throne of your heart. Touch your neighbor. Say, who's on the throne this morning? With all that being said, let's get to work. Have you ever been jealous before? Some of y'all laughing. Have you ever been jealous? Think back on a time you've been jealous before. I'm going to pick on my poor mom. She's not even here. You just keep this between us. It'd be great. But I remember as a kid, she would pack our lunches. And listen, we weren't bougie back in the day, okay? And we don't raise our kids that way either. We'd, we go great value today. Anybody else? You do some great value. All right. That's what we did when I was growing up. And so mom would pack lunches. And God love her. She would, <laughs> for the snack, she would pack us. Did you know there's such thing as an off-brand Twinkie? I love a good Twinkie, but the off-brand, back then at least, they were called Golden Fingers. Does anybody remember Golden Fingers? Nobody. That's what I thought. So, man, we would dig into lunch, and we would get to the last part. You eat the junk to get to the dessert, right? And so we get there, and there's the Golden Finger at the bottom of the lunchbox. And you look around, and the other kids got Oreos and Chips Ahoy, man. We got Golden Fingers. It was like a dried sponge, some weird glaze on the top, filled with hate. It was awful. And you remember, you remember trying to trade at the lunch table? I'll give you this if you give me that. No, nobody taking the golden fingers. You stuck with them. Jealous, man. My gosh. You ever been jealous before? I'm t- I just made some of you hungry, didn't I? What if I told you this morning that God's jealous? God is jealous. Maybe you've never thought of that before. Maybe you didn't know that, but I'll prove it to you. If you look in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I'll read a few verses. God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make yourself an idol of any kind or image or anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I will not tolerate your affection for other gods. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's speaking in the first person. I'm jealous. Now, it's interesting because you're talking about a God who owns everything. He created everything. He spoke it into existence. So how can someone, how can a being who owns everything be jealous? Because in his sovereignty and in his divine will, there is one thing that he has given control of. He has given it up. And it's your will and mine. He has given you and me the opportunity, the right to decide who is going to sit on the throne of our hearts. He will not force himself on you. He will not force himself on me. He has given you and me the right to choose who or what will sit on the throne of our hearts. It's important to realize the fact that the the opportunity for choice is critical for love. You cannot have authentic love if you don't have choice. I want you to consider your spouse this morning. Hopefully, They married you, not out of force, but out of choice. I don't know if we have any arranged marriages here, but the thing that makes love beautiful, that makes marriage beautiful, is you chose one another, right? 
all the billions of people on planet Earth, and they picked you. That's a miracle, isn't it? Maybe not for you. For me, I counted a miracle. She had plenty of options. It's a miracle because for love to be authentic, there's a choice, isn't there? I'm not forced to be with her. She's not forced to be with me. And that's what makes this work. And so for love to be authentic between us and our creator, there has to be the right to choose him or to deny him. Some people have gone so far as to blame God for the sin of Adam and Eve, saying, well, why did you put a tree in the middle of the garden where they had the opportunity to sin? Because for love to be authentic, there has to be the opportunity for choice. God will not force you or force me to love him. And so that's where we get a jealous God from, because he is jealous for the throne of your heart. You have the right to choose. He says, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image, right? And so maybe as we read through that, some of you go, man, I'm in the clear. I've not made anything. Not bow down to any wood. I don't know anybody. I don't think we do that really anymore around here. Not made any sort of image. I'm in the clear. But can I tell you that an idol doesn't just have to be something that you make with your hands. We've got as many idols here in the United States today as any culture on planet Earth. They just look a little bit different, don't they? They look like our children. They look like our jobs. They look like our house. They look like our paycheck. They look like our hobbies. You want me to shut up yet? I mean, I can keep going. We've got idols everywhere, don't we? Anything, anything that sits on the throne of our heart, any person that sits on the throne of our heart is an idol. And God says, I will not tolerate an idol. He demands that he sits on the throne of our hearts because he is a jealous God. Are you with me so far? But here's what's important to realize is that God, in this story with Abraham and Isaac, God was not in conflict with Isaac. He gave the gift of Isaac to Abraham, but God was not in conflict with Isaac. He wanted to ensure that Abraham's heart was in the right place. It was not an Isaac problem. It was an Abraham problem. And it's important to realize that because God has given us gifts and he wants us to enjoy them. He wants you to enjoy life. Did you know that? There are some people, unfortunately, that preach and believe a sort of poverty mentality that God just expects you to suffer and hang your head all your life. If you smile, you're probably sinning. If you're laughing, you're probably sinning. If you have anything good in life, you're probably sinning. Church, that's just not biblical. He wants you to enjoy life. I'll prove it to you. James 1.17, every good gift. Say every. Every good gift is from above. Everything good, meaning anything in life that is good, it originated in the Lord. You cannot bypass God and get anything good. It all comes from Him. So anything that you enjoy in life originates from the Lord. You can't get it outside of Him. It all comes down from Him. He wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to have good things. Matthew seven eleven, a verse that many of you are familiar with. Jesus says, if, you're, if you sinful people Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more 
will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So God's not just a giver of gifts. He's the giver of good gifts. He wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to enjoy the blessings of life. He wanted Abraham to enjoy Isaac. The problem was not Isaac. It was Abraham's heart. And church, the problem happens is when we try to take a good thing and make it God. When we take something that was supposed to be intended for good and we make it God. There's nothing wrong with the gifts of God. But when we put it on the throne of our hearts, that's when it becomes an issue. God wants you to enjoy your marriage. I hope you enjoy your marriage. But your spouse cannot be on the throne of your heart. I hope you enjoy your children. They're a blessing from the Lord, aren't they? Most of them, some, I'm just kidding. They're a blessing from the Lord. But they can't be on the throne of your heart. That's when it becomes an issue. And so what Satan will try to do is he will try to get us to take something that was meant to be a blessing and supplant God on the throne of our hearts. And in this passage of Scripture, there's no indication that Abraham sinned. But obviously there was a temptation to take the gift of God, which was Isaac, and place him on the throne of his heart instead of the Lord. And God says simply, I will not tolerate your affection for other people, for other gods, for other anything. He says, I will not share you. When I said yes to my wife, there was an understanding there that it's, it's just me and her forever. There's no room for anybody else. So I said yes to her, and every day since, I've said yes to her. And it's been a simultaneous no to every other woman, and vice versa. <laughs> she says, amen. For anything other than that, for it to be anything other than that would be a violation of that type of love. That type of love is sacred. It's a word we don't use enough. It's sacred. It is set apart. And for anything, anybody to violate that makes it not what it should be. It's impure. And so when God says, I won't share you, we can be tempted to think, man, that's kind of needy. That's sort of insecure. If there's anything God is not, it's insecure. And isn't it something, even when you talk about marriage, like I'm devoted to one person 100%, in today's culture, that scene is insecure. No, that's just called being holy, isn't it? That's just called being holy, isn't it? Okay. So I won't share you. I will not share my wife with anyone ever for any amount of time. That's the deal. And what the Lord is saying to us is the love that I have for you is too sacred. The love that I have for you is too pure. The love that I have for you is too special that it can't involve anybody else. It can't involve something else. It has to be me on the throne of your heart and nobody else, or it ceases to be what it's supposed to. It cannot exist with something else. But here's the deal, is that all of us, to some degree, at some point, probably have things that try to creep in, don't they? It's so funny. Earlier this morning, it happened, where Brother James set his stuff where he normally does here on the front row. We've got a couple teenagers that sat here. And what'd you say, Brother, Brother James? <laughs> he said, you're in my, I'm going to need you to move, right? And so I asked him, you're not going to sit there with him? And you said, no. 
I wouldn't either. I'm not going to sit by anybody. I'm not going to share my seat with somebody. I don't know about you. We just, I'm not doing it. What makes us think that God would share his seat with somebody else? Can you imagine asking the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, hey, would you mind scooching down a little bit? The great, the one who sits on a throne and lightning shoots out of it. Hey, do you mind bumping down? I got something else I need to sit here. You mind holding this for me? Now, come on, we'll laugh, but it's true, isn't it? I've been guilty of it. God, I love you. I don't want you to leave the throne of my heart. There's just something else I need to sit here as well. Would you mind scooching over a little bit? Would you mind bumping down a little bit? There's something else I want to sit here too. And God's saying, I won't tolerate it. I'm not going to share you with anybody. I'm not going to share you with anything. It's me on the throne of your heart, or I'm going to get up and allow your will to be done. Now, Jesus did the ultimate and said, your will be done. But God will bow to us for a moment and allow our will to be done. And we've got to be careful that we don't ask God to scooch down on his seat. He won't tolerate it. And church, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that, okay, because God is near the top or he's at the top along with some other things. It's not going to have it. It's deception. It's, 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 it's a mirage. It can't exist. He is on the throne of our heart. He's there by himself, or he's not there at all. Who's on the throne of your heart this morning? What's on the throne of your heart this morning? Is he there, and is he there by himself? Are y'all with me so far? There's been a couple times in my life, maybe you've had this un, uh, uncomfortable interaction ball game. I've had it happen a couple times on an airplane where you, you get to your seat and there's somebody sitting in it. And some people I feel like do it on purpose because they're going to be like, are you going to have the uncomfortable interaction with me to ask me to move? The answer for me is yes. Okay. Especially if we're on an airplane and you're in my aisle seat, I'm going to need you to bump down. Okay. I don't care if you're twice my size, like you're just going to need to suck in your gut and deal with it. All right. And you said, Chase, that's kind of messed up, man. No, it's not. I paid for that seat. I bought it. I have no shame. You're in my seat. For a second, I want you to do your best to put yourself in Abraham's shoes, sandals. After all this time, God comes through and fulfills his promise. Can you imagine? You know, older folks get tenderhearted too, man. Don't you know that boy Isaac was just spoiled? Everything he did, Abraham was just all about it, right? Everything. That was God's promise. Spoiled kid. Day after day, enjoying Isaac. Day after day, just looking at him. That's the one I was waiting for so long. Can you picture it? Do you remember what it was like holding your kid for the first time? Nothing like it. Abraham lives with Isaac, enjoys spending time with him. And then one day God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to the mountain. I'm going to show you, and I'm going to need you to sacrifice your boy. You know he didn't sleep a wink, did he? Would you? But the next morning he gets up, 
gets everything prepared. Maybe he goes into where Isaac's sleeping and says, hey, son, I need you to get up. Where are we going, Dad? We're going to go on a little trip. They get up and they begin to travel. And I just want you to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. What do you think he was thinking for those few, few days as they traveled? These are the last moments I'm ever going to get with him. Am I going to hear that laugh again? I mean, all that stuff. Don't you know every day, every night, those things were coming into his mind. Day three comes, and he sees the place in the distance, and he tells the servants, I'm going to need you to wait here. Me and the boy are going to go up and worship. So he grabs Isaac, and they begin to walk up the hill. Maybe Abraham was walking a step or two ahead of Isaac, so they didn't see the look on his face. Can you picture it? Are you there? Abraham leads his son up that hill. He arranges the wood. And then he puts his son on it. And then he grabs the knife. And the only hand that was lifted that day in worship was Abraham's hand about to kill his own son. And right as about the time that death was about to deal its blow, God stopped him. Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. God provided that day. Can you imagine what it was like The celebration, the joy, the relief. There may not have been a more relieved person in history than Abraham at that moment. His son was spared. But just like every story in the Bible, it's just a microcosm of a much larger story. And hundreds of years later, another son was led up a hill. God led his son up a hill. He was laid down on wood. And he had done nothing to deserve what he had received. And the only difference in the stories is that on that particular day, nobody stopped death. God came through and stopped death in Abraham's case. But in the case of his own son, nobody stopped Jesus from dying that day. He had to watch his own son. Get crucified for the sins of other people, for my sins and for yours. Watched his son endure the punishment. Watched his son get deserted by everybody that was close to him. Watched his son get mocked and blasphemed. He watched his son as his flesh was torn apart with that whip. Watched as they placed that wood, that old rugged cross on his shoulders and marched it up a hill. He watched as his son had a crown of thorns put on his head. He watched as the spear was jabbed into his side. He watched as the sins of the world were laid upon his innocent son. And he suffocated slowly to death. He paid for the seat of of my heart. He paid to sit on the throne of my heart. He bought it with the blood of his own son. Is anybody hearing me this morning? He paid for that seat. He paid to sit on the throne of my heart. He earned it. It was the most expensive purchase that has ever been made. God bought it with the blood of his son. Don't tell me he hasn't earned the right to sit on the throne of my heart. Don't tell me he hasn't earned the right to demand that he sits alone in my affections. He's earned every bit of it. 
because he paid for it with the blood of his own son. It's not needy. It's not being insecure. He's saying, I earned the right. I watched my son endure it. Don't tell me I didn't pay for it. That's my seat. That's my seat. Church, I've been as guilty as anybody where I've allowed junk to sit in God's chair. And the problem is it's not bad stuff. It's a gift. But I've put it in the wrong spot. And God's saying, it's time for you to give me my chair back. It's time for you to allow me to sit on the throne of your heart. I will not sit anywhere else. He's earned it. He bought it. I want to close with this. Chase, how do we do this practically? Kate, why don't you come play, please? Thank you. How do, we, how do we ensure that God is on the throne of our hearts? How do we make sure that the gifts of God don't supplant God? Everybody do this for me. Would you do that? Would you just hold out your hand like this? You want to know how you do it? Just that right there. You hold the gift of God with an open hand. What we tend to do is that God will give us something, and we lack hold of it. We do this. This is mine now. God blesses us with a marriage, and we do this. This is mine. He blesses us with children. It's mine. A career. It's mine. No, no, no. It's this. Everything in our life. You can put your hand down. Thank you. <laughs> Everything that God gives us, we hold it with an open hand and say, God, it's yours. You have allowed me to hold it, but it's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. And it's a challenge, isn't it? Because we want to take possession. But in order for God to be on the throne of our hearts, we've got to live our life like this. It's not my marriage. It's his. They're not my children. They're his. I stood right there with all three of my kids and made a promise to the Lord that I will raise them not according to my own desires, but to his. Now, I'll be honest with you. That's easy when they're about this big. They start getting a little bigger, and daddy starts dreaming. Scholarships. Dollar signs. Don't act like y'all don't think that way. Seriously. And something that I once held like this, over time, I can do this. That's when it becomes a problem. It does not belong to me. It belongs to him. My job, my time, everything, it's his. And that's how we ensure that God has the throne of our hearts, is that we live our life with an open hand. And you'll be amazed at what God will put in an open hand if you'll put him on the throne. He's a giver. He's not a taker. He's a giver. And you'll find that the more you live life with an open hand, the more he'll trust you, the more he'll bless you, the more he'll give you. Come on, anybody testify that this morning? Well, we got to do more of this. Who's on the throne of your heart this morning?